Thanks to the breakfast team for three hours of great radio to start the day with. But stay tuned because next up is Discovery, the National Science Show, with science that's on the nose and making big bangs to find out more about the Big Bang. Welcome. 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 Stand and welcome. Hello, good evening and welcome to Discovery. 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 Listen to Discovery. Discovery. <gasps> Discovery. Discovery. Sounds like a lot of fun. Somewhere in space, this may all be happening right now. Now to the speeded up brain of a user, that sound lasts for four hours and sounds like this. Discovery. Uh, yeah. Hello and welcome to the finest hour of half hour of science radio in the fashionable end of the western spiral arm of the galaxy, Discovery. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, we'll feature atom smashing at the relativistic heavy iron collider, the science of smell, and digital watermarking. But first up, here's the news with Matt Clark. University of Michigan professor Philip Gingrich has discovered the fossilised remains of a whale in the middle of the Egyptian desert. The whale, dated at around 40 million years old, was found in a desert valley southwest of Cairo and is approximately 18 metres long. Gingrich and his team describe the whale as almost snake-like in appearance and does not actually bear much of a resemblance to whales today. In fact, Gingrich says the animal may not even swim through the ocean as whales do today and using an up and down motion of their large tails. Instead, it may have got around using a very similar motion to swimming snakes. The team who made the discovery say that the fossil was found in an area of desert very rich in other sea animal remains. So far along with the whale, they have discovered five other species of whale, three species of sea cow, two crocodiles, several turtles, a sea snake, and large numbers of sharks and other fish. In a blow to science and a big win for mischief makers worldwide, a scientific paper containing nothing but computer gibberish has been accepted at a scientific conference. The garbage paper was submitted to the World Multi-Conference on Systemics, Cybernetics and Informatics to be held in July in Florida. The accepted submission called Router, a methodology for the typical unification of access points and redundancy, is not the first prank paper to be accepted for submission at a scientific conference, but is the first to be completely written by a computer using random word generators. Jeremy Stribling, along with a few other friends from MIT, wrote the program that wrote the paper after raising a few questions about the standards of academic, academic conferences. To increase their chances of having the paper accepted, he made sure the computer would include such intelligent-sounding phrases as the model for our heuristic consists of four independent components, simulated annealing, active networks, flexible modalities, and the study of reinforcement learning. And, of course, we implemented our scatter-gather I.O. server in Simula 67, augmented with opportunistically pipelined extensions. The conference organisers said that the paper was one of a number accepted without review at the submission deadline after as the submission deadline closed before the papers could be peer-reviewed. He did concede, however, that the submission process will be scrutinised before the next conference. And in caveman news, 
A team led by Dr. Harold Straubel from the National Office for Archaeology in Dresden has discovered what they believe to be the earliest examples of pornography. The team found fragments of two clay statues, one male and one female. The figures were created in such a way that they are unable to stand up or lie down on their own. Dr. Storbel argues that this indicates they were in either a ritual dance or an erotic pose, but that is much more likely to be ancient erotica. The artifacts were unearthed while Storbel and his team were excavating just north of Leipzig and are thought to be dated at close to 5200 BC. Professor Jens Lunig from the University of Frankfurt does not believe this find is an early example of Stone Age porn, but rather a depiction of two individuals and not a couple. Even if there are different interpretations about the figures, Dr. Storbel hopes that they will inspire historians and anthropologists to invest, investigate how people in the Stone Age viewed sex. It is very possible that sex in prehistoric times may not have been a taboo subject, as it is even in today. You're listening to Discovery, the National Science Show. Close your mouth and breathe in. What do you smell? Better still, how do you smell? But don't worry if you can't answer that question, because neither can the scientists. Well, at least not completely. David Huang reports. Where would we be without a sense of smell? Life would certainly be pretty bland, and not just because you couldn't stop to smell the roses. Most of what we call the taste of food is actually smell, and comes from the volatile molecules that reach your nose when you take a bite. Smell also protects you from danger. It saves your stomach by stopping you from eating rotten food, and saves your life by telling you to get out of a burning building. Smell is particularly important in the animal world, where it's used for, for everything from finding food to finding a mate. Understanding our sense of smell is also a pretty big deal, if the Nobel Prizes are anything to go by. Last year, Americans Linda Buck and Richard Axel shared the Nobel Prize for Physiology and Medicine for working out a lot of the key details about how our sense of smell works. One thing they figured out was how the signal from an odour molecule binding to a receptor in your nose gets to your brain. The other thing they did was to characterise all the genes that code for the proteins that make up the odour receptors. They found a thousand unique genes in total, but not all of them code for functioning receptors. Mice have about 900 different types of receptor, while humans only have a measly 350. Still, it's a lot more than the three different receptors that you have in your eye for sensing colour. Although Buck, Axel and many other researchers have figured out a lot about smell, some pretty significant aspects are still hardly understood at all. Perhaps the biggest mystery is why molecules smell the way they do. At the moment, no one can say, just by looking at a molecule's structure, how it's going to smell. People have worked out some empirical rules over the years, but there's still no systematic approach. A couple of plausible theories have emerged to explain the smell of odour molecules, but neither has received much rigorous testing up till now. They're the shape theory and the vibration theory. The shape theory currently has more support, but that might just be because it's like a popular theory that explains a lot of biochemical processes. This is the lock and key mechanism by which things like enzymes and antibodies work. In this mechanism, to trigger a signal to the brain, the odour molecule has to fit the receptor 
like a key in a lock. But there are problems with the shape theory. The lock and key mechanism works well for big molecules like the enzymes that digest food in your intestines because they have distinct shapes with lots of bumps and folds. The enzymes and the molecules they react with really do fit together uniquely like a key in a lock. But odour molecules are small. They have to be, to be volatile enough to float through the air and into your nose. And small molecules don't have very distinguishable shapes. In fact, it's been shown that each odour molecule binds to more than one receptor in your nose. This has to be the case, or otherwise there would only be 350 different smells to go with our 350 different odour receptors. And we all know from experience that there are more than 350 different smells. The lock and key mechanism has been superseded now by a partial shape theory, in which the smell of an odour molecule comes from the combination of different receptors that it binds to. But there's still no good explanation for how this occurs. Some observations also don't fit very well, even with the partial shape theory. For example, a lot of molecules with completely different shapes smell almost exactly the same. So perhaps we should consider the renegade vibration theory. In this theory, instead of distinguishing shape, odour molecules are tuned to the vibrational frequencies of the chemical bonds in the odour molecules. This theory is attractive because even for small molecules, the set of different bond vibrations is like a fingerprint of the molecule. But even the vibration theory has problems. The theory predicts that if we somehow change the vibrational frequencies of an odour molecule without changing its shape, its smell should still change. A recent experiment has tested this prediction. Researchers at the Rockefeller University in the United States took the molecule acetophenone and replaced all the hydrogen atoms with a heavier form of hydrogen called deuterium. They then got test subjects to smell samples of the two molecules. Deuterium is twice as heavy as the normal form of hydrogen, but pretty much the same size. However, since vibrational frequencies decrease with mass, swapping hydrogen with deuterium changes the frequencies dramatically. But contrary to the vibration theory, the test subjects couldn't tell the difference between the smells of the normal and deuterated molecules. So we still don't have much of a clue about why molecules smell the way they do, but there is considerable interest in solving the problem. Smell, in the form of the perfume and flavour industries, is worth billions of dollars a year. If anyone figures out how to design a molecule to smell a particular way, they stand to make a truckload of money. The volatile David Huang on the science of smell. Still to come, atom smashing and digital watermarks. 60 Second Science Did you know that some chocolate factories use chocolate trays which can melt away when they are fully immersed in water? Well, they do. Those chocolate trays might look like plastic to you, but they are actually biodegradable trays. Biodegradable means that the substance is able to be broken down into simpler substances and disappear into the environment. A Melbourne company called The Plant Technologies was the first to develop the material used in this biodegradable trays in October last year. The new material feels like plastic and can be coloured. The only difference is this plastic alternative dissolves in water. The new material significantly reduces the environmental impacts of plastic packaging and provides a new supply of resources that is renewable and harmless to our environment. So next time you feel like a box of chocolates to cheer you up, 
check if that plastic is environmentally friendly. 60 seconds. Science. Claire Yim from Ravenswood School. 60 Second Science is brought to you by high school students enrolled in the University of Sydney's course Problem Solving and Communication in Science. Oh no. was Sex Machine by Pucho and his Latin Soul Brothers. You're listening to Community Radio's National Science Show, Discovery, brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network. Some scientists get excited by bashing tiny lumps of stuff together really hard and seeing what comes out. Discovery's Chris Stewart should know. He used to be one of them. 
This week, atom bashers in the US got very excited indeed when they bashed some atoms and glimpsed, just for a fraction of a second, the Big Bang. Chris Stewart reports. Take some gold. Two gold atoms, actually. Well, ions then. Two nude gold atoms stripped of all their electrons so their bare nuclei are showing. Then accelerate the gold ions, make them go fast. Very, very fast. Almost, but not quite, the speed of light. Oh, and and put them on a collision course in a wide, circular tunnel full of superconducting magnets deep underground beneath Long Island in the USA. And then take these very fast, very energetic, nude gold atoms and bash them together. Stand back and watch what happens. What do you get? Well, it's small. Very, very small. Think of something small, something really, really small. It's much smaller than that. And, And hot. Very, very hot. Hundreds of thousands of times hotter than the core of the sun, which is really quite hot indeed. And it's ephemeral. Really quite mind-bogglingly ephemeral. But it's brought us closer than ever to understanding how the universe works. Very, very close, in fact, to that momentary act of creation, that primordial fireball, the Big Bang itself. It is known as a quark-gluon liquid, and physicists at the Relativistic Heavy Ion Collider, or RIC as it's known, in the States, are as excited as puppies about it. It isn't every day you discover an entirely new state of matter beyond the usual solid, liquid and gas, and it isn't every day that you peer closer to that magic moment of cosmic creation than anyone ever has before. Here's the deal. We know that matter, all the stuff around us, is made of atoms. Einstein gave us the first conclusive demonstration of that in 1905, and modern electron microscopes can actually see, or more accurately, feel, individual atoms on an object's surface. So we're pretty sure atoms are real. Atoms have electrons in them, electrons which, if we set things up right, flow through wires to deliver electric power to our iPods and vacuum cleaners. And atoms have a nucleus made of protons and neutrons. And we're pretty sure that electrons, protons and neutrons exist, not because we've actually seen them with microscopes, but because we can measure really carefully what happens when you pull an atom apart, say by using really strong magnets or by bashing them together until the protons and neutrons fall out. And then they smack into other atoms lying around the place and we see the effects. The electrons, as far as we know, aren't made of anything. They're just electrons, which is cool. But the protons and neutrons are made of things. They have insides, three bits each, called quarks. And the quarks stay glued together, thanks to other particles called, well, gluons. And that's it. That's what we know. Quarks and gluons make protons and neutrons, which make nuclei, which combine with electrons to make atoms, which combine in various ways to make molecules, which make cats and dogs and birds and bugs and all of that stuff. And that's the way it's been for billions of years. Wind the clock backwards over the millennia, and all the stars and galaxies start getting closer together in the dim past, closer to the Big Bang from which we all exploded about 13 billion years ago. Things start to get very hot way back in time, with everything so packed in close together, but it's still atoms. Until, until you get to when the universe was just 400,000 years old, which is a long time ago indeed. Before then, things were so hot that atoms couldn't form at all. You had a compact, crowded universe filled with electrons and nuclei. Keep winding the clock back to about one minute after the Big Bang. 
Before then, you just had protons and neutrons flying about. No atomic nuclei could form. And back even further to when the universe was just a hundredth of a second old. That's the time difference between gold and silver medals in the 100 metres of the Olympics. Before that time, quarks and their sticky gluons were too hot to form even protons and neutrons. And so you had a universe filled with quark-gluon soup. And that, my friends, is what they made at Rick recently. A tiny, tiny, astoundingly tiny bowl of quark-gluon soup. It was about one femtometer across, which is a millionth of a billionth of a meter. It was about two trillion degrees centigrade, and it lasted all of 10 to the minus 24 seconds, which is a billionth of a billionth of a... Well, it's a very short time, right? But it's exactly the same conditions you would have seen if you were around when the universe was just a tiny fraction of a second old. And no one has ever seen that before, which is pretty cool, don't you think? Ex-Adam Basher Chris Stewart reporting on the primordial soup being served up at the relativistic heavy iron collider in the US this week. For groovy pictures of those first moments of creation, go to www.bnl.gov forward slash RHIC. That's www.bnl.gov forward slash RHIC. Did you know the ears of a cricket are located on its front legs, just below the knee? Discovery, the radio show that tackles the big issues in science, and quite a few sub-microscopic ones as well. Discovery delves deep into what makes the world tick, bringing you the latest, greatest, and weirdest in science from around the world. We don't care if your ears are on your front legs, as long as you tune into Discovery, heard on community radio across Australia by the Community Broadcasting Association of Australia. So, Keir, I've heard of all these big record companies that are using digital watermarks. What are they doing? Well, what it is mainly about is something that they call DRM, or Digital Rights Management. This is people trying to protect their copyright, artists or um, film studios or directors. And, dig- and digital watermarking actually comes out um, of something that's been around for quite a while in the image processing world. But why it came about is because people like to download music and download movies. I would never do that because I'm a good law-abiding citizen. But someone who looks quite like me and lives in my house does it relatively frequently. They've tried a few different ways to stop people downloading, especially things that are really, really new. Records before they've been released, for example. A couple of things they've tried was a uh, CD that couldn't be copied, unless, of course, you'd drawn it with a felt-tip pen. They've glued up CD players before sending them to record reviewers. And Metallica recently, for their album, flew people from across the world to San Francisco, sat them in a room and gave them one listen and sent them home again. So they've tried a lot of ways to protect them. But some things happened that you can't protect against. And something that a friend of mine who's a sound engineer has experienced close up and personal recently, which got me thinking about it. He's a sound engineer who's worked on a lot of hip-hop albums. And... They send him out the record sometimes six to ten months before it's even released, you know, as it's being worked on or before they've got the right moment to release it. But they don't want him downloading it or or uploading it so other people can download it. So what they do is encode information about himself into the music itself so that if he were to upload it and they saw it out there and download it themselves, they'd be able to find out by reverse engineering it who was the culprit. 
So they actually put his name and details into each song. Now, I think he, I think I can hear myself saying, so wait a second, the, the next, you know, um, huge Jay-Z album comes out with different versions with people like, uh, this one was made by Greg at the beginning. It's not quite like that. Because the information on the disc, on the CD, is all digital, it's digital music, it's all ones and zeros, a lot of it isn't actually used when it comes down to the ear, bits that the ear don't perceive, kind of like a little bit of noise that gets covered over by the, say, loud bass track. It's in those places that they hide the information, and they can hide anything they want. They learnt this through digital watermarking in the image processing world, where for quite a while people have been using it as a form of cryptography. In a sense, hiding things. Cryptography is what you use to hide your passwords from other people from hearing them or you know, uh, pass information around that no one can see or hear. So in the noise, in the blackness, in the bits that aren't used in an image, they would hide information that they actually wanted to pass around. And as long as you know how it's hidden, you know how to get it out again. So if you're authoring your WAV or your MP3 or your audio CD to get out there, you know how it's put together. So you can put whatever you want in in the hidden bits and you put them there so you can go and find it later. And it's their best way that they've found of stopping people um, publishing the CDs before they've got a chance to actually sell them to the public. It's, a re- it's what I think a really good protection of copyright versus the attempts from players like Microsoft to make one-play DVDs and one-play CDs, which is seemingly ridiculous because if you can play something, you can record it. doesn't matter if you've glued the front shut. doesn't matter if it's a different shaped disc and it'll only play in one disc player. If you can play it, you can record it. And the best way to find out who's playing it and who's recording it is to actually encode information about that person or where they're from into the music itself. And that is the art of digital watermarking. Thanks to Keir Smith for telling us about digital copyright protection. That's all from us in this edition of Discovery. If you'd like to contact us, you can reach us via email at discovery at 2scr.com. That's discovery at 2scr.com. Or check out our website at www.2scr.com forward slash discovery. Contributing to the program were Matt Clark, David Huang, the steganographic Keir Smith and Chris Stewart. Discovery has been produced and panelled by Chris in the studios of 2SCR Sydney. Discovery is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Discovery.
Thank you. 